Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host Titus and today I'm joined again by my friend James Lilacs for another discussion in our Middle Brow series. Hello James, thanks for joining me again. We're coming back to our Middle Brow series with more ruminations on cinema from the 70s onwards. You've grown up with a lot of Spielberg movies I imagine, and I'm looking at it backwards from a generation later, thinking Spielberg was America's family magic guy, wonder at the (laughs) movies, fear and fun. So talk to us a bit about this. Uh, fear and fun, indeed. I mean, family movies, yes. <clears throat> family movies in which young nubile girls swimming innocently in the ocean have their legs removed by an atavistic force of nature. Fun and family in the sense of a guy possessed by a vision of otherworldly creatures abandons his entire family to go hang out in a rock with some single mother that he just met so he can get on a spaceship and abandon everyone. <laughs> yes, <they're- laughs> I mean, if you want to take a dark look at it, I'm sure you can. Uh, you can even go to Jurassic Park, where innocent children are placed in great peril thanks to Grandpa's overbelief in the virtues of technology to save them. But, I mean, you can look at any Spielberg movie, I suppose, and try to find a dark subtext out of it. But at the time when we were watching them, we weren't seeing dark subtext. We were seeing tremendous entertainment that was packaged and given to us in a way that few things had, at least few things that we knew. The directness of his filmmaking and just the joy of telling a story may have been very much old school, perhaps for my parents, but for those of us who grew up watching either large-scale Panavision, Roadshow, chitty-chitty, bang-bang nonsense, or or depressing films in the early 70s where everybody had to die at the end, you know, because of the times, man. Spielberg was, uh, obviously, to use the cliche, this breath of fresh air when it came to straight-ahead storytelling that was just extraordinarily technically well done, without being, you know, arty in a way that the French liked. I mean, it was just a great American storytelling. And maybe it's looking back in retrospect that you're able to see what you didn't see at the time. Now, I mean, Jaws was the movie, of course, everybody goes back to Jaws. I mean, I, I would like to say that I remember being a young man and seeing Duel on TV and the movie of the week, and I probably did, but I was probably 12 and I didn't think. This augurs a whole new style of, of auteur meets Hitchcockian. I mean, none of that occurred to me. It was just probably just a great little TV movie. But it was Jaws that woke everybody up. When I saw Jaws in Fargo at the Cinerama Theater at the edge of town we'd had a flood that year the red river had flooded and flooded the theater so the first five rows of this steeply raked theater were there was it was water standing water in the theater now this is the era of sense around you know and 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 all of these other technological innovations we just had a flooded theater where if they'd been smart they would have taken a a, a motor-controlled fin and trolled it back and forth uh, you know in in the aisle so we watched this movie and little do we know being the kids in high school that we are, that we're actually seeing something which could be conceived as a discussion and an examination of American masculinity and archetypes, and how some are in ascendance and how some are in descendants. The obvious allegorical elements of Jaws, the Ahab, the Man of the Sea, all that stuff. What we probably didn't pick up at the time was that Spielberg and his screenwriter had come up with three very clearly demarcated masculine personalities the old mystical man of the sea, untutored but with great knowledge of experience. In the middle, you had a law enforcement character who was sort of a man of the state of the by the book, but was still an individualistic because he was a law enforcement officer. And then you had the scientist, who was the young man who was the man of brains. 
And so these three archetypes coming in 1974-75 at the end of Watergate is very interesting because as much as Spielberg's movies seem to be about how there may be corrupt elements in society, society itself is generally okay, there's an element in Jaws where it's very much Watergate when you think about it because the mayor... The figure of authority is a craven, corrupt man who just wants the weekend to go on so everyone can make money. If you go back to a horror movie of the 50s, the authorities are always the good guys. They're always upstanding. They know what they're doing. They're on the side of right. The mayor in a 1950s horror movie would be the guy who rallied everybody and marshaled it. But post-Watergate, the mayor, the political guy, is the one who's suspect. So what do we do in this post-Watergate era? We give the authority, essentially, to science and to the man of the law, who is not of politics, and they're the ones that survive, and they're the ones who beat the evil. But if you look at it in terms of the archetypes and whether or not you could actually make a movie with three cis-normative white guys in a boat today, um, I don't know. So it's very much of the era, and is just an incredibly well-made movie. Yeah, you're right. Jaws shows you that you really need this shark hunter guy who really is crazy, doesn't just look crazy, but also has larger-than-life willingness to take risks and daring of death, but is a thing of the past in America. It's progress in the future, science and law. Right. But you also have, I mean, these three men on this ship, even though they look from the outside, a, a very shallow intellect would look at them and say that they all share the same skin color and privilege and the rest of it. Within the similarities are differences that are chasms. I mean, all Richard Dreyfus's character can do when it comes to showing his scars is, you know, is to open his shirt and say, Mary Lou, she broke my heart. Whereas <laughs> Quinn has got a story of going down with the Indianapolis. So he has that forged in the fire World War II greatest generation mindset. The new guy has experienced nothing. And in the middle of it is Brody, the policeman who has got a pretty cushy job, but still his experiences. So, I mean, within those three guys, the differences are enormous. The diversity between those three individuals and the classes that they represent is quite wide. Yep, and it shows the coming of more science, more prosperity, more education by the time you get to the marine biologist. But they're nevertheless related in a certain way, at least in this case, great danger, they're isolated together. A certain concern for manliness comes out that is usually buried in Spielberg movies. Right. And maybe it's only obvious in this one thing in Jaws. In other cases, he transforms manliness into an American childish version of it. He likes a lot Tom Sawyer heroes. Mm -hmm. Indiana Jones is that sort of guy. He's actually fairly manly and takes a lot of risks and does dangerous things that maybe are nasty. And he's not a nice guy by any stretch of the imagination, but he's a winner. That's what's so impressive about that character. He's also an academic, though. That's the other thing. Yep. When, when he puts on his glasses and goes to class, he becomes unmanly by a factor of about 10, you know, he's about 10% of, uh, of the burly, sweaty guy he is out in the jungle, which is about the emasculating aspects of civilization, culture, knowledge, and university and the rest of it. Yes, exactly. That's a story set in the 30s, and you already see that, well, it's civilization. You don't get to swing on jungle creepers. You don't get to fight off dangers or go through traps. But by the same measure, it suggests that there's got to be something fun and adventurous and dark to excite the American imagination. It can't just be civilization. It's too boring. 
Right. And again, I'm not sure you could do any of the first Indiana Jones movies nowadays. Well, even the second, the second now comes under castigation for the way it depicts Indian culture and rightly so. I mean, it's all of these epicene creatures, you guys with sweaty faces grinning as they talk about chilled monkey brains and the rest of it. <laughs> but the first movie is such a throwback. Yeah, I mean, people talk about it in terms of, as with Star Wars, with uh, homage to the original serials. But the more of the old serials you watch, the more you realize that they took a couple of elements, but they added so much to it that these aren't just updates of serials. These are just a complete reimagining and expansion and apprehension of something much larger. They create from this very cheap, pulpy material something wonderful. If you look at the serials or the movies of the 30s, you will see the plane going from places to places on the map with the black line behind it, right? Yep. Which says something to us now, which immediately tells us that we're looking at somebody who's studied, and this is an homage. This is meant to remind us of all these things, but it's so much more. And the first Indiana Jones movie, with Harrison Ford coming off his previous role, cementing this rogue character. I mean, now when we look back on it, we say, okay, how old was her character when they first got together? Because there's something a little not quite right there. Uh Retrospectively, we'll look at that. We'll look at the very idea of this white archaeologist going into the jungle to steal precious artifacts of another culture. <laughs> to yep. put in a, I mean, his whole line, that belongs in a museum, is contrary <laughs> to everybody wants to take back from you know the British Museum the, the Elgin marbles and install them God knows where. I mean, nowadays, no, that doesn't belong in a museum. That belongs back in the temple, indigenously so, so the original culture can do what they wish for. So, I mean, it was slightly incorrect, maybe a little bit then. Now it's very much so incorrect. Who would have ever thought that Indiana Jones would turn out to be a transgressive text that we look back and say, is it okay to Blame watch the this the colonialism today? there. Yeah. Uh-huh. The white hunter. Unabashedly so. Absolutely so. Yeah. yeah, you're perfectly right. Spielberg was the best in his generation and since at bringing back genre and elevating it at the same time. A lot of this stuff, Indiana Jones, just as much as something like Jaws, looks like genre pictures. This would have been schlock in the old days. Whereas now it gets this whole new level of attention, both in a technical sense, that's why people like Spielberg. Things look amazing on screen. It's believable, but it's not stuff you've seen before, and that's hard to do. It's hard to keep coming up with things that seem plausible, realistic, but at the same time are new enough to attract your attention and give you a clear sense of why are you going wow. And one of the reasons you go wow, I think, is Spielberg is able to infuse a certain immediate emotional reaction to the genre that he's reviving. I mean, you can look at the Coen brothers, who I love, and the Coen brothers have marched through every single genre picture there is. It just seems to me like they're ticking off boxes. We're going to do the 40s noir. We're going to do, you know, a gangster picture. We're going to do a Texas noir. I mean, they just, they do them all, and they do them extraordinarily well. They're brilliant movies, but they always seem to be regarding their characters like a butterfly specimen on the end of a pin. Spielberg is on the side of the people that he's describing, and there's an emotional reaction and involvement that the audience picks up on. Yes, that's a very good contrast to draw on. It's again because in so many Spielberg movies there are kids. There are kids being mischievous. There are kids being endangered. There's family, but family itself is endangered often enough. And this allows for fun and thrill to at the same time get at worries we live with and fears we live with. You root for these characters. You want them to come through at the end. But you're kind of okay with them being in the adventure and even envious of them. I'd like that sort of adventure if it were safe. It's quite a fantasy to have. 
And you're right that he gave this back to America. This is what genre stories are able to do. They're safe storytelling. But they can have an amazing power for that reason. They allow you to admit things that otherwise you wouldn't. Yeah, and the way the children are presented, I mean, there's all kinds of different ways that he presents children that range from heartbreaking to annoying. I mean, the kids in Jurassic Park are there simply to be creatures in peril and to give Sam Neill, who doesn't want kids, that's his thing, to be a pseudo-father for a while and to be annoying. You know, the little girl says, oh, this is Linux. I know this. I can type into the computer very fast and deactivate the security system. I mean, the implausible and early moment of the brilliant cyber hacker kids who type quickly and figure out systems. And then you have the children of Close Encounters. The children of the main character are irrelevant and vanish as soon as convenient. And then there's the small child who says very little, is transfixed by these magical objects in his farmhouse in the middle of nowhere that suddenly become animate, and runs out to the beautiful light and disappears. I mean, that's a terrifying moment, because you're more with the mother than you are with the child. I mean, you want the child not to put himself in peril, not to react as a child would. But then in E.T., of course, you're on the side of the child who does give in to these wonderful magical things and becomes part of another world. So yeah, there's all these different ways that he puts it. But it's not just the children. In the late 70s and early 80s, it was a portrayal of American domestic life that was familiar to everybody, but didn't seem to have been put on the screen before. We got messy houses. And we did get messy houses to show that the people were dissolute or on drugs or that their lives were in disorder. They were just busy. And it was the 70s and there was lots of stuff around and you had a lot of kids and they were spilling cereal and the television set was on. And Stranger Things, for example, that great Spielberg homage that everybody talks about on Netflix, that's what it focused on, was that sort of quotidian chaos of the domestic American situation that Spielberg put up on the screen. Prior to that, magazines were in perfect order on the coffee table. Mom was in dress and a pearl, and everything was vacuumed and dusted, and that was the house. He gave us the homes that we lived in, and that just seemed very, very new at the time. Yeah. Again, it's something both immediately recognizable and strangely new. It's not what you've gotten used to. That's another thing that Spielberg brought back to genre. Genre gets boring, but it doesn't start out that way, and people are attracted to it for pretty good reasons. It does have innovation, and he innovated in a bunch of different genres at that, and a lot of that had to do with showing that domesticity is not quite enough for Americans. People live domestic lives, but they don't feel the need to be very neat about it. Like in the examples you give, domestic life is just there. It's itself a testimony to restlessness. Houses are not supposed to reflect how you'd like other people to see you. They're just how you live. And for Mm -hmm. that reason, they record this incipient chaos of American freedom. But if it gets too chaotic, though, that's when the problems start. Close encounters you can read as a story about a search for meaning. I mean, here's a guy who all of a sudden experiences the transcendent. Like Saul on the road to Damascus, there's a light. There is a galvanic physical reaction. There is a miracle around him as everything in his car, his truck cabin, moves around. The lights clang, and he sees something. He sees a vision, and he comes back with a sort of stigmata that half of his face is burnt. And he comes back transfixed. He has this mission now to find the transcendent, and that brings utter chaos to his domestic life. All of a sudden, he's making Devil's Tower out of mashed potatoes. He's ripping up the house to make mashed manifest his visions. Thinking back about this, Richard Dreyfus may have been the wrong guy to play. I mean, he was great in the role, etc., because everybody at the time was expected to like Richard Dreyfus because he was zany, he was energetic, he was in stuff. But if you look back on it, I mean, what if Spielberg had cast Joe Don Baker, some less than articulate character who really struggled with the fact that this 
very ordinary, placid life that he'd put together was unaccountably shaken now by this vision. Dreyfus, when he goes off into that area of being obsessed and starts throwing things out of the window of their house and breaking up the domestic situation, we accept it and we're with him because we've already built in our belief in Richard Dreyfus. He's the character we're supposed to like and believe in. If that character had not brought that, the audience would have had, a, I think, a more difficult time getting next to what he was doing. And it would have been harrowing to see this man destroy his life in pursuit of a vision. At one point, when they finally get close to the site, and he's with the woman who lost her child, and I think they're in a helicopter or something, and they're flying over, and they look down, and they see a bunch of dead cows, because the story had been that there'd been a chemical accident of some kind, and that's why people were being evacuated. And I remember seeing in that movie, feeling very much what the characters did, like, oh my God, what if we're wrong? We in the audience had seen everything that the characters had seen, and more. We knew enough to believe, but at the same time, there was something about them and their reaction. You had so much invested in them that you, too, thought, oh, my God, what if we're wrong, even though we know what Spielberg is up to? But if you had a character who did not have that built-in trust that we gave to Dreyfus, then the destruction of domesticity, I think, would have been a lot more unnerving to us and may have pushed us away from the character a little bit more. It might have made for a more grown-up, dare I say it, darker I don't think that dark and grim equals better, but it might have made it, in retrospect, a different movie and maybe a better one. I love Close Encounters, but that's something that just occurred to me. You're certainly right that there's a great contradiction there between a somewhat loving portrait of American life and then this sense that it's just not enough. People don't invest more in the order, beauty, and cleanliness of it all because they're always trying to get away. And this guy just really does. He literally abandons his family and disappears. Contrast him with the woman he goes to the miracle with, who all she wants is her kid back. She wants family back. This guy wants to throw away his family. And there you see another part of where freedom might lead to. Mm -hmm. And you're right that it's way less pretty than people think. But Spielberg was always very good at hedging, making you like characters just enough to go along and not to think too much about how wrong it might actually be. In the movie, the woman that he meets up with, the woman who's looking for her son, I don't know if she has more than 10 lines of dialogue in the whole movie. I can't remember her being anything other than looking blonde, early middle-aged, attractive, careworn, and concerned. But if you put her in the role of the wife and made her solid, exasperated, loving, but completely opposed to what was happening to her husband. Again, the fracturing of the domestic situation would have been more harrowing. When you put Terry Garr in that situation, being shrill and clueless, again, you're saying, yeah, I'd start making up mashed potatoes too. We all love Terry Garr, but she's about as annoying as you can get in this movie. So yeah, I'd be lighting up for Devil's Tower too. But if he'd gone to Devil's Tower and run into Terry Garr, yammering away and with that confused look that she has, again, (laughs) it would not have brought the solemn majesty to the last act of the movie that the other woman brought. And essentially her role was just say, I'm sorry, the screenwriter says we shouldn't have a romantic relationship and the audience wouldn't buy it anyway, so why don't you just scamper on down there and get in the ship? Yeah, they just make out for a second as he runs off because there's something better waiting for him and it's 2001 Space Odyssey, the moon base, but it's brought to Earth. It's there on Devil's Tower. But it's kind. The 2001 Space Base was a horrifying, implacable monolith, a black thing that when the sun touched it, screamed. It screamed. 
This is an enormous, wonderful, candy-colored machine that comes down and sings to us and has dancing little you know, servants around the side doing everything like slave girls in an old 1950s Arab movie with the little symbols in their hand. It's just this wonderful pageant. What Spielberg plugged into there, after all of these years of the aliens, basically are going to come here because they discovered we have invented atomic bombs and so they have to destroy us. The idea of these benevolent creatures coming down and singing to us and wanting us to join, it was marvelous to experience in the theater. It was absolutely, you hate to use the word, but it was magical. Yep. And again, when the movie starts out, there's great foreboding. It's Francois Truffaut, for God's sakes. <laughs> talking in French to people who are jamming on and pointing and talking in French. And then you have a crowd of Indian people singing a song and you have this gesture and none of this, you have no idea what's going, there's a plane that came back. It's scary when the movie starts and it ends with such wonderful optimism. And I saw the version that didn't end with him getting inside, you know, Wizard of Oz stuff. So it was a marvelous movie. It really was. And every three or four years, I'll go back and see it again. And it just gives me the same warm feeling at you does despite all the stuff we've been talking about yep exactly somehow he managed to turn even this sort of space odyssey stuff into something welcoming something you'd even want to revisit again like in space odyssey he goes away you make contact with this transcendent alien stuff well you're a goner but it's not scary in this case that's a strange thing to pull off, especially because, as you say, the movie starts with all sorts of things that are baffling. Some of them are incredible to look at, stuff in the desert, but they're all really portentous. But by the end of it, he's got you to believe that, yeah, this could be great. I might be doing it too. Yeah. It's a remarkably persuasive guy. Spielberg knew that people were waiting to root, even for these characters, to be taken on that ride. When times are uncertain, the alien movies tend to get good. I think we become more hopeful. I should amend that. Here, at the end of the 70s, after a tumultuous decade, we get this very, very optimistic picture to come. And that's interesting. So now you go back into the 90s, and you look at what seems to us now to be a very hopeful. It ought to be, because we'd won the Cold War. Things were going relatively well. All of a sudden, you had the X-Files. And we had, because things were going really well, we had this indulgence in alien visitation and alien abduction and the rest of it that spun into this whole government conspiracy nonsense that if you're working in late-night radio and listening to Art Bell, who was a midnight Alex Jones light type character... Ah. There was nothing but dire times ahead because of the government and because of the aliens. And this is at a time when we look back now and say we had absolutely nothing to worry about. Things were going on pretty well. But at the end of the 70s, instead of this dystopian message where the aliens come and destroy us because we deserve it because of Watergate, Jimmy Carter, and Vietnam, we got this thing that actually humanity might be of interest to other species who are looking around. We've got something going for us. And maybe it took Spielberg to be able to say that in a way that everyone could get next to, but he did. He was saying we're worth the attention of somebody to come by because there is good here and that felt marvelous to experience yeah it's what adventure of this kind is always going to be about the restlessness and rest of the times always does mean would we really be worthwhile would we really be worth the attention so going out there into the unknown and finding aliens at the same time means finding somebody who thinks that you're all right that you're interesting that you're worth I, something I, 
And I hate to be a speciest here and say that I don't know why we wouldn't be fascinating to anybody because you can't tell. I mean, xenopsychology or whatever they, whatever they call it. But I mean, look at it this way. They say any sufficiently advanced spacefaring civilization that can get here, we don't know what their morals are going to be. We don't know what their interests are, et cetera, et cetera. But the idea that us in our current state would be beneath contempt does not speak well of the aliens because I'm fascinated by the ability of ants to create underground colonies and with their social structure and to have a colony-wide mind, to communicate through pheromones, to have food trails, defense systems. I mean, it's all mechanistic. It's all the result of evolution creating this, this machine we call the ant, and that's fine. But if I went down one day and I saw that the ant colony, that they had built structures and had built small little vehicles that they were using to go to different structures across the yard, and indeed that the ants had developed the ability to shoot something up 17 yards into the air in order to get an aerial perspective of the backyard, I'd be pretty damned impressed. So even if we are like ants to them, the fact that we have gotten off the planet, that we have machines at the edge of our own galaxy, that we have landed machines on other planets, is, I think, enough to say, okay, well done, there's something here that's worthy of our interest. So the part that we would just be like ants to them, I don't get. And that's, again, what, what Close Encounters is about. But there's something else. You and I now, we're able to turn on Star Wars and Star Trek and Guardians of the Galaxy and everything else, and we see cinematic vision of other worlds and aliens and space and the rest of it of a quality that is unrivaled, right? It's utterly believable, or at least it should be. When you see in a space movie an enormous spaceship come down, however, the back of your head, you know this doesn't exist. This is all in a computer. Everyone's on a green screen. This is all just trickery. We accept that, and I think we're a little bit the worse for it. If you look at what Spielberg and Douglas Trumbull did in Close Encounters, there was a lot of practical effects there. There's a lot of process photography, but they built these little models and shot them with filters and wisdom around. In Jaws, where we started talking about, that's a shark. It's a mechanical shark, and even at the end, it's kind of obvious that it is. It's more terrifying because at least it's a real fake thing as opposed to a virtually fake thing. So the apotheosis of all of those practical effects ends up with Jurassic Park, where you have the first utterly believable computer-generated effect, and also maybe the last one that didn't seem to be computer-generated. Those were so real, and it was like only a director who had been working with practical effects for all these years could have the sensibility to give us a virtual effect that actually seemed so real as it did. How many years ago was Jurassic Park? Wow, 93, that's 25 years almost. Right, and the T-Rex to this day holds up completely convincing. And maybe yep. because it's not so hyper-realistic. Maybe because part of our brain isn't saying, wow, look at the way the subtle ripples of the musculature under that well-patterned <laughs> flesh. Yes, you're right. Yeah. So, yeah, digital has really robbed us and every generation younger of this fascination with practical effects and this understanding of what realism at the movies does. CGI is just going to take this away. What are you going to do? We were tied up with wondering what's going to appear on screen and on the other hand, wondering what it is possible to do. In both right. cases, you are running up against limits and the unknown. Now it just seems like there's a limit to our imagination. Can you really imagine persuasive aliens that are going to be new, interesting? Most of the time, no, not really. 
Well, Arrival, I mean, I mean, Arrival to me was one of those movies that just gave you aliens outside completely of what you would expect and what you could conceive. Yeah. That was the problem. Linguistically, how do we develop? Oh, we talked to them through coffee stains and the rest of it. I mean, <laughs> yeah. and it's yeah. interesting stuff. But I wondered, while you were talking about practical effects, I mean, James Cameron, when he shot Titanic, had the sense to actually build a ship in a big tank, right? Yep. So nowadays, they wouldn't do that they would just build the whole thing out virtually. It almost makes you want to know if Spielberg directed a Titanic sequel. And I, I never can figure out why there wasn't a sequel to that Titanic, because there were three <laughs> ships. I'm serious, there were three yeah. ships. You know, and because one, it's not the 70s anymore, and we don't do that disaster show every year. Right, Airport 72, 73, 74, 75. I think they actually did do a, a Titanic sequel. I think they did the Britannic. Um, uh, the Poseidon, and, I think, got a reboot. Yeah, there were yeah. a couple, that's true, but they were pretty small. Right. But since there were three ships that were the same class as the Titanic and two of them sunk, I would like to think that they could have gotten a, a sequel out of that. Or Lusitania, which is a fantastic story, mm-hmm. too. Yeah, that's right. And so I would love to see Spielberg do a big disaster movie like that again and see whether or not he could bring his touch to something that would have to be almost exclusively virtual. You know, just think Empire, about something like James Cameron's Avatar. Very I don't want pretty to, to look I, I at, have, but it's worthless. <laughs> Jumping fully into digital, you lost me. Right, and there's going to be 17 more of them, and they'll be the highest... Gro- I mean, it's the strangest thing. The highest grossing movie ever, apparently, had absolutely no impact in terms of culture the way the Star Wars or Star Trek ever did, or Jaws, for that matter. I mean, Jaws, to this day, you can start to hum the theme song, the motif mm-hmm. for the shark, and people know exactly... Almost a half century <laughs> later, you're talking about, which is impressive. Yeah. And Star Wars, iconic musical theme. Star Trek, iconic musical theme. You Even know, the Vulcan. fanfare for Indiana Jones is rousing, uplifting, and memorable. Those were, of course, old things, all these fanfares especially, but they were brought back and they were done well. Yep. It seems like they're pretty necessary even now as parts of what makes something memorable and what makes a sense of wonder and, and a sense of pride in wonder work on screen. It's stuff that digital is probably going to need as well, but it's not clear how it's going to be done now. We'll find out soon with Ready Player One. Yeah. Of all people to direct this book, which is a grab bag of 80s pop culture references and exists in a curious world in which no pop culture has been made, and everybody speaks and refers to the old pop culture, like Darmok at Tanaka when the walls fell in the Star Trek episode. I'm curious to see the movie. I don't want to see it in a theater because I have the feeling that the audience will be just sort of chuckling to themselves, but in a noticeable way when they get a reference that's just Mm -hmm. for the people who know. So for Spielberg, the master of broad entertainment, the creator of the cultural entertainment zeitgeist in a couple of decades, for him now to be shepherding a project which is a retrospective look at how that stuff turned into memes and seed corn and became ossified into a series of fossils traded among the youth. I don't know if that's fitting and great and he's the right guy or if it's sad that it's him, but I trust him to do it better than some director who is just 26 and has been doing nothing but CGI stuff. Yeah, it's Spielberg's last chance at something big, and he has to confront the fact that he's become nostalgia. Yeah. It's strange, right? He's mostly been trying to get a legacy out of fairly bad, but very technically well-made movies with a meaning. Speaking truth to power, all this stuff, that's never going to work because the Academy hates his guts anyway. Yeah. 
and the audiences aren't that interested. Whereas uh, it's a chance to bring the old Spielberg back to look at what's screwed up again about family. Ready Player One has a lot of that. And why are you trying so hard to escape it? Why are you trying mm-hmm. so hard to replace real by virtual? And hopefully he doesn't get very moralistic about that, but he gets very realistic about it instead. That's why the sense of wonder works. If you believe that the characters are part of all the drama of American freedom, then you're going to go along with them. The one thing we haven't touched on, we probably should before we end, is that all of the films that we remember, the great Spielberg movies, are buttressed by a kindred spirit who made the music. And that the symphonic skill of John Williams over the course of these years has pushed these movies to be a little bit more than they are. Um, if, if he'd had James Horner doing his stuff, um, there would have been a certain sameness to the to the work. If he'd had Jerry Goldsmith, it would have been wonderful, but it would not have had that sort of great yearning and... Uh, and, and power that Williams can muster. I mean, I think John Williams is the is the the greatest twentieth century American composer, post war American composer. He uh, might uh, just be. He's certainly the memorable, outstanding one. And he he brought to to the movies like it's like in Close Encounters. At the end, you can trust the aliens because of music. Isn't that exactly yes. what we believe? And isn't yes. that why John Williams works? It hits you. It's immediate, and it it gives you a certain swelling. You swell up inside. That's you're sort of pleased and proud. That's right, and it's pleasurable. And it's such a boomer thing too. If it, if a boomer generation believes that they were united by music, that rock and roll was the anthem of their generation, and that you you know don't trust yep. anybody over thirty because we're the ones who are with it and we get it because we're listening to the birds and the rest of it, then you would say that there is something transcendent and unifying about music. Yep. I, I mean, it's also hard to imagine. Good point, right? Democracy yeah. turned into musical democracy. Kids yes. made the rules. Everybody was in on it or could be. Right. You never had yeah. anybody in a, in a World War II movie convincing the Nazis to give up their weapons once you played them some Benny Goodman. You know, hey, this is swinging stuff. You know, we're going to lay down our, you know, down with the Wehrmacht, man. We're going to we're going to come over to your side. No, they would have never thought that. <laughs> you know? Wow, that's great, James. <laughs> but, the, but the boomers would would naturally think that. And uh, in in some of um, in some of William in uh, I'm trying to think of the movie Catch Me If You Can, for example, mm-hmm. uh, which is just you know that wonderful little caper movie that he made with Tom Hanks and Leonardo DiCaprio, right? Yep. Um, John Williams decides to just do this jazzy score, and he strips it down. Mm-hmm. And you remember that here's a guy who started out many years ago, I mean, 50, 60 years ago, doing small little scores for television before he started to get into um, you know, the, the stuff for which we know him now. And so for, for John, and John Williams did the score for The Post, too. And yep. there's some wonderful little small cocktail lounge, small-scale pieces that just show you how much more there is to him than bombast. But before we go, we should probably remember this as far as we're talking about Williams. Before John Williams hooked up with the science fiction visions of Steven Spielberg, for which we know him, Close Encounters, um, and E.T., and mm-hmm. you know, and, and the swashbuckling stuff. He was the, he was the house go-to guy for Irwin Allen, who's like the anti-Spielberg. Really? Yes, Irwin oh, Allen's wow. Land of the Giants, Lost in Space, he did two themes for him. Um, he was known as, he went by Johnny Williams, and he just turned out he just turned out yards of music for these guys, and it was discernibly his. But it was for that Irwin Allen sensibility that's that was as airsats and and kitschy mm-hmm. and unbelievable and campy 
as Spielberg and 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 Lucas would, in their heyday would eventually you know be be the opposite. They were they were the the real versions, the real thing, the real the real things of the fake exploration of the expansion of the old genres. If you want to coin a phrase, yes, exactly. <laughs> this is going to take off. Yeah, it'll do it. That I think that'll be. <laughs> I think people quoting I'm quoting me in that one for a long time. But you're right, they fit. They they came together and it worked. It uh, it added a certain grandeur to genre that again is really really needed. Something has to lift you up. Right. And and not just grandeur but a connection with uh, an older cultural tradition. I mean if you look at John Williams' score for the the first Star Wars movie, there's Princess Leia's theme. Um, which is a nice, nice theme, serves her very well. But Williams orchestrates it and lays it out like, um, like Dawn by Greek. The way, mm-hmm. the way he starts sure. it out with a very simple motet, and then he adds it. It's, it's, it's very much sort of of a piece of that. He's bar. He doesn't steal like Andrew Lloyd Webber, but he <laughs> borrows. Yeah. And if I mean, oh, and if you listen to the, ever. yeah, I, boy, does he ever. I mean, the, the very Star Wars theme itself is kind of. Borrowed from Corngold's theme for from King's Row, a, a Ronald Reagan picture. Yes, it is. Uh, da da and then he goes on from there. But then, I mean, he it's what he adds that shows that it's not just swiping; it's it's homage, shall we say? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's almost the layer line. And when yeah, God, I just saw 1941, his right? one scruple comedy where he does all these jazzy numbers and swing his stuff, and has an entire. Uh, redo well a version of Sing Sing Sing, the Benny Goodman uh, hit, redone to fit an entire musical and uh, uh, screwball sequence by Spielberg. Uh-huh. It's uh, there you see again that they fit in a strange way, and they're quite imaginative with the old stuff, bringing it back and making it interesting. It's so yeah, there uh, th- there's a lot to be said for bringing stuff back, for taking stuff from the older culture to get more complexity and a certain sophistication and I think also grandeur for the new world of um, films and blockbuster cinema especially. So here's the question: Will Spielberg then Spielberg? If Spielberg, as I said at the beginning of this, is the is the guy who show you what's wrong with the system, but he won't say that the system itself is wrong. I mean, he'll there's the, America is okay. We have our problems, we have our flaws, we have our faults, but in essence, this is not this has been a worthwhile project. Then you go to Lucas, and you have this utterly shallow mind who somehow conceives of Star Wars as a parable about the Vietnam War in which the, you know, it, right? Yeah, exactly. It, 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 and and it's, the, it's the most unthinking, knee-jerk, shallow, you know, predictable leftist nonsense that you can imagine. So Lucas's work just gets worse and worse and worse and becomes talking nonsense that guys sitting on robes on sofas talking about politics, whereas Spielberg... Who is probably as liberal as the day is long, yep. nevertheless apprehends something special in America. So the question is whether or not Spielberg, the thing that he finds special about America, was taken from the cinema, or was it taken actually from the culture that produced the cinema, or both? I mean, is he the greatness of America to him? Is it is it is it the cinema, or is it the 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 soil from which it sprang? That's that's my question to you. 
yeah, that's that's worth considering. And as I was saying, I just saw 1941 again, where the Japanese want to attack Hollywood. Right. <laughs> you know, that's America for you. And <laughs> so the, I think ultimately I lean in that direction. But I wish it were otherwise. I wish, say, Ready Player One came because he gets that there's both good and bad in nostalgia and that if you're selective about your nostalgia that allows a lot of great things about america to come out mm-hmm. uh, i hope that that's what it means that you want to bring back genre pictures the stories of the people and show that they had some dignity too that uh, also with the music and all the sorts of things he learned from previous movie makers that i hope he gets that they're american part of their greatness <clears throat> is tied up with that Right, so it, it, you, you're right, and you, I was just thinking about artificial intelligence, which is his attempt to redo a, or to do an undone Kubrick movie, and the sensibilities the sensibilities just could not be more um, ill paired. Yeah, and and it, I mean, of all the things that I would have expected, if Kubrick had done that movie, um, the ending would have had a, a remoteness, I think, that might have spared the audience. What what Spielberg brought to it, what Spielberg <laughs> because Spielberg made you feel at the end of yeah, that. Yeah, you didn't need so, to feel that. That's true. <laughs> which is a horrible. I mean, an absolutely horrible ending that was as bleak, and yet as 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 you know emotional as uh, you're. I mean, Aliens come back after man is dead and let a robot boy die in his mother's arms. Let's all class yeah. <laughs> stand. <laughs> Let's go out for pie and coffee with that one with a smile on our faces. Um, whereas I imagine that Kubrick, if Kubrick had done it, at the end of it, there would have been some sort of intellectual distance that would have made it um, an interesting uh, exercise. But um, yeah, so maybe more of a reflection on our mortality and less of this sort of sentimental stuff. That, but that's Spielberg. He is super yeah. sentimental. Yeah, and and that's good. I mean, sentiment. Yeah. It, it the movies. It's... The movies have always traded in bathos. They've always been just playing and plucking and yanking at our heartstrings from the very beginning. They've always been the man falling on his face. They've always been the gun pointed in our faces by the train robber to make us shriek. They've always been, you know, the naked woman swimming in the water before the haze code came down. I mean, it's all there from the start. And yeah. this, to be living in an age where somebody as extraordinary as Spielberg, who can be hit and miss, but is never less than fascinating, um, it, it's like being there when Hitchcock was at his greatest, when the, the great directors were on a roll. And he's been on a roll for a very, very long time. And I, had, I, sh- I should now end and go because I'm just... Yep. Thanks a lot, James. I'm glad we're back to doing this. It has been great fun. We can cover the rest of the Spielberg career another time. And uh, hopefully this is the sort of stuff we'll be seeing in Ready Player One. Stuff that makes us wonder about uh, wonderful things. uh, Where we have both fear and fun. Next time we can talk about Irwin Allen and time travel and how it describes the American boomer's antipathy <laughs> and conflicted reaction to history. You know, no, no let, let's just not. <laughs> okay, talk, talk all to you the later best. More. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Folks, this is it for this edition of the podcast. If you enjoy our conversations, please subscribe on SoundCloud and on iTunes. You can find us as ACF Movie Podcast. If you're on iTunes, leave us a review and rating. It helps. Please share our podcast so that we can reach as wide an audience as possible. And of course, always leave us a comment.